I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Happy birthday, Gary. (laughs) Thank you, Guy. It's not exactly my perfect spot for a birthday. Tulsa, Oklahoma. I would I would dispute that because it turns out that we are steeped in musical history where we are. It's it's a museum centre. It's the home of the Woody Guthrie collection, the Bob Dylan Museum. We're going to church studios later. There's just no pleasing some yeah. people. No, I think I'd mean I'd rather be at home with my family. <laughs> but but you're right, you're right. I went to the Woody no, Guthrie. No, people um, mustn't so. think we have any life other than music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, but I, I went to the Woody Guthrie Centre yesterday, which so has got lots and lots of his uh, notebooks and, and well, it's, it's, it's his entire works are all there and his incredible paintings. I didn't realise Woody that's, Guthrie was such a great uh, uh, artist. That's, uh, I would, you know, I would pay whatever for one of, for one of his paintings. They actually move me as much as his, as much as his writing, frankly. Yeah, yeah, and an incredible story, you know, this... this they talk a lot about who his influences would have been. And obviously we all know how Billy Bragg has spoken a lot about Woody Guthrie and the protest songs and Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan. But there's elements of what, what he was doing, which would have led into, I'm thinking of, of sort of Jug Band and Skiffle and the Quarrymen and inevitably the Beatles. Yes, it, of it course. Links, yeah, it yeah, yeah. links together. Well, also, he even, I mean, Joe Strummer looked a bit like him. He did, he did. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and that's a very, uh, very silly. Uh, I, I can imagine, I think Joe probably got a lot from, you know, him, his whole shtick. Well, writing, mm. on, his, writing on his guitar, you know, which is obviously yeah. what Woody did. This, this, this machine, machine kills, kills fascists. fascists. Brilliant. And, and, and then I went pop next door and saw the Bob Dylan. Um, we go to these things separately because I quite like to walk around on my own. Because you hate me. No, but I, I, well, I, we do go separately. Also, <laughs> well, I wasn't feeling that well. So I, I went, but I would, do you know what? After the Woody Guthrie, I thought, Mate, it's if it's Dylan next door, you you you've, your head's full. Go back tomorrow. You're going today. I'm going today. Is what I mean. Yeah, yeah I just thought. You know. well, I went yesterday, and I tell you what's extraordinary because because you know Dylan had nothing to do with Tulsa, but he wanted to be next door to Woody Guthrie. He, he sold his works to, or he gave his works to Tulsa to this one guy who's collected it all. He's called Kaiser. That's his surname, Mister Kaiser. He's he's the one who's made this Woody Guthrie and Bob, Bob Dylan um, museums here in Tulsa. And what the thing that really took me by surprise is they've got some of Bob Dylan's notebooks and his lyric books, and it's tiny weeny fairy writing that he writes in. <laughs> I mean, it's the smallest <laughs> writing you can imagine. It's quite it's quite sweet, but it's unreadable to the human eye. I found that I found that if, I found that in the Woody Guthrie Museum. I was, the the handwritten stuff is just it's exhausting. Yeah, but of course this is the trouble now because people write everything on computers. Exactly, you know, exactly. We're not, we're not accustomed to handwriting, and plus, you know, we're getting on. <laughs> it's not really worth selling. Anyway, to our guest today, who's a little bit of a sidestep for us, but not entirely. It seems it on the face of it that Paddy Considine is an actor and 
we, Guy and I are obsessed with Game of Thrones and, and House of Dragon that is currently running, yeah. uh, where Paddy plays. And we're assuming, King and we're Viserys. kind of assuming with the sort of audience we have that probably quite a lot of you are too. Well, yeah, I think if you're into, certainly if you're into prog, you're probably into well, Game of a, Thrones. Because I've got to say, the thing that stops me watching um, Game of Thrones for years, right, I, I resisted, was, was the thing that kept me away from, a, and still does, from a lot of prog, which is dragons and capes. Don't do it for me. But then you, as soon as you start, it's irresistible, isn't it? It's absolutely irresistible. But what's incredible is his performance. Yeah, he's, in, he's in fantastic. This, uh, is astonishing. There will be so there will be spoilers um, to spoiler alerts up to uh, episode eight of of this first season, uh, where where Paddy sort of stars. But the other reason for getting Paddy on is not only is he a fan of Rockanteurs, um, but he has done a lot of music he's got a fantastic band called riding the low uh, who i've seen latest album you've seen uh, well, we'll get to that i've seen only only a ah. bit but i have yeah but um, um the fantastic new album called the death of gobshite rambo and the music is brilliant it, they're and, really and really good all three albums are really really good I've got to say. Yeah, and he's he's sort of been involved in a lot of music. You know, he was he, he played Rob Gretton, uh, Joy Division manager and 24-hour party people. Frank Thorogood, the, the, the man who, who, who may have murdered um, um, uh, Brian, Brian Jones. Jones in the Stephen Woolley film Stoned. And he's, uh, he, he's written uh, and starred in an Arctic Monkeys video, Coldplay video. I mean, yeah, music is also part of his life, right? Yeah, absolutely. So let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's, uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Two, two get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! How we doing? Oh, Paddy. Gary, what Guy, an intro. What an intro. Fantastic. Just for our <laughs> listeners, right? Literally, the screen came on and he whipped off his shades. That was, right. <laughs> that was magnificent. Yeah. Paddy, you look much better than when I last saw you, which was last night watching uh, episode eight. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty uh, bad House way. of the Dragons. I'm thinking that in House of the Dragon, they're gonna, they just had to lose you at that final point because they'd run out of makeup. I think so, yeah. That took up most of the budget, just getting me to look so emaciated. <laughs> but yeah, that was some uh, that was some gig. That was some hours in the makeup chair and a bit of VFX and things like that. Yeah, but it was pretty sort of like my wife showed me the the last image and it was just like it just shocked me how how kind of much I looked like my dad who who died, you know, of cancer. And when I saw the the final thing, my wife called me and she goes, "You just got to see the end bit when before you die," and it was just a massive shock because I looked the image of my dad. It wasn't just like, oh, it reminded me of my dad. I looked the image of him when he went in the last few days of his life. So I was just like, oh, God, that's a bit close yeah. to the bone. But there you go. But, Paddy, it was absolutely an incredible performance all the way through. All the way through, and man. We, it's we, fantastic. We, we, We've been wrapped, wrapped, I tell you. 
we want to get on we want we'll go we'll go we'll go on to onto that later but i think we wanted to sort of being the rock on tours we wanted to let our audience know and we have spoken about it in the intro about you with your band and and you as a musician who i've seen and, but not properly Paddy, I found two tenuous links between t- you and me, right? I was going to, I said to my guitarist the other day, Chris, I said, this will be the first rock on tours where Guy Pratt won't be able to say, ah, no. I've worked with them or I've got some kind of link. <laughs> I have accompanied you on the bass, but not while you were singing, while you were acting. I played bass <laughs> on the score of the movie Blitz. Oh my God! There you go. There you go. It's... Do you know what? It's so it's so fucking boring, Paddy. I'm so sick of it by now, right? What was the second connection? The second connection right. was that I saw you. Sat, I was at Bingley Weekender. No way. But I couldn't see you because uh, you. I saw you sound check, and I saw the end of your set because uh, you were on at exactly the same time as my son's duo, Outline, who I was tour managing and production managing and everything on the Sunday morning, which is why I was there. Oh, uh, brilliant. I I no yeah. idea. Oh, it would have so, been great to have met you. Oh, it would have been fantastic. I know, but there you go. <laughs> so, 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 Paddy, riding the low, we absolutely love these records. We really do. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, I've got to say, because this was meant to happen, sorry, Gary, this was meant to happen a couple of weeks ago, right, uh, this thing. And so my research is I was listening to these albums walking around Chicago at night, mad, bustling Chicago, and it just worked, you know. Oh, it's brilliant. So, well, I'm absolutely blown away, really. I know you guys are very researchful. Part of my trepidation of doing this was... I love this show. I, I listened to Noddy Holder and David Coverdale, and there's been so many great apps, and they've got these great stories about their life in music, and that's what I love about. And I'm like going, "What the hell have I got to say? I don't have any anecdotes." So I'm like talking myself out of doing it. And the only reason oh. my wife said to me, "Like, well, Gary's asked you to do it," and I was like, "Well, yeah, I know, but I don't really have a rock and roll history, and no one's brought loads of our records, and you know, what do they want to talk to me for? I'm just an actor." And she went. Gary's an actor, and I mean, oh, okay, fair enough, fair enough, man. We'll do it. <laughs> but this is but this is the thing, though, Paddy. You know, and what, which leads to the question is: is when you're up on on stage with Riding the Low as the lead singer, are you still an actor, or is that yeah. you? Because I know under in the new album, you know, if you look at the credits, you're Gobshite Rambo. Yeah, aren't you? yeah. I mean, the new album is called The Death of Gobshite Rambo, but is that your Thank character? You. And is that what you hide behind? Is that the only way you can present yourself? Because you've not been gobshite Rambo on earlier albums, have you? No, that's something that developed, and it's a bit of an in-joke in the band, actually. It's, it, it goes back to years ago when, I, uh, you know, I used to get quite drunk when we played, and I, you know, used to kind of gob off a bit, and mouth off a little bit, and I thought I was being funny, but it actually came off as really aggressive and not particularly nice. So I'm, I was up there thinking I was having a laugh. And it, that's not the way that it was really uh, going down. So I kind of um, sobered up out of it, really. Um, but Gobshite Rambo became just this sort of generic character in a way. Um, and partly nicknamed after my father, who the, the title track is about. Funny enough, it's about the day that he died, that particular song. Oh, wow. And watching everybody's reactions to, to his death and his Did passing you write that? Weird- Sorry, Seven, did you write that before you did that scene or had seen that scene? 
written has oh yeah 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 i'd written that song a few years ago it's on the album yeah but it's funny because it's quite strange what's going on at the minute because i feel a lot of things are lining up a lot of my work over the years has been about this sort of subject matter you know with life and mortality and Mm -hmm. and you know watching loved ones around you pass and where they go go to and things like that and you know so to see that in in house of the dragon the other night and and part of the song i think what i'm trying to say is a lot of the songs writing is it's kind of about that scene i suppose but i was very much observing my family and watching their reactions to my dad dying and, and looking at him in the room like a like a filmmaker would i remember having a bizarre thought going um how would i shoot this if i was a director well i'd start on my sister and i'd yeah and I had this <laughs> weird things going through my head and mm-hmm. and I just thought, well, it must just be your coping mechanism. But that's the great thing to me about songwriting. And that's why I started becoming a, I became a songwriter was because uh, I was able to put these thoughts and things into songs and it felt a lot easier than making films about them. But is, is that that thing that you're just saying about your, watching your dad dying and, 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 the, and the death of, of uh, Viserys and, and this song, is this the sort of rage against the light, isn't it? That, yeah. That you as an actor would, 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 would tune into. Um, but it's also to do with reaching a certain age when an awareness of your own mortality. Yeah. And, and, and watching, you know, watching, because I've watched... I mean, I've watched both of my parents die, you know, and it's it's an extremely painful, difficult thing, but it's it's just, we know we all have to go into that. But you're then, but as an artist, you put that into your work. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think I've done all along in the best acting roles and in the best songs that we've written. That's kind of what I've done. And that's been the, an odd journey for me in terms of the reception to Riding the Low and the kind of suspicion around it, because... I've always been, well, I'm just, I've had no shame in calling myself an artist because I understand that gave me a, a title and it, and it gave me something that I was, I, I could give myself a little bit of meaning by calling myself, myself that. And um, I, I think that all I've ever really done through the best acting work and through the songs is try to just make some kind of sense of this existence. and and just try to tell stories about it. There's the obvious ones of, of like, uh, of people like Bowie who construct characters or whatever, but I don't know, if you've, if you've seen Spring Scene on Broadway, it's like within the first five minutes, he's revealed that everything is a complete construct. You know, he wrote Born yeah. to Run, he lives five minutes from where he grew up, and his entire, this person who, who his audience view as the ultimate in kind of truth and integrity, but is basically an idealised construct of his father. It's a character. Yeah. Yeah, so that's probably what partly what I created as well. Yeah. So when you ask Gary about is it what is it Paddy or is it a performance? It's definitely a character, but the voice coming through it all and in the writing is definitely Paddy. So even up on the stage, it's a bit of both. I, I, when I go on stage, we wear paint now and things like that, and it just gives me it makes me feel a bit braver going up there and standing. Do you look pretty front. scary. I've got to say. Yeah. Well, at some point, you know, <laughs> there's blood now and, you know, get out a baseball bat for one of the songs he'd and, you know, there's more sort of characterizations coming into the performances now as, as we're growing as a band. What it reminds me of a bit is Alex Harvey. Is, is that someone that you, you, you know? Yeah, yeah, the Alex Harvey band, yeah. And funny enough, I, got, I keep a, a separate Instagram account and it's a scrapbook of imagery and Alex Harvey's in there. You know, that, yeah. and, and there's that great performance of him. I, I don't know what festival it's at, but it is it somewhere in Europe. And he's on stage 
and he's kind of got these tights over his head and things like that, and he puts them in his mouth, and then he's looking out at the audience in, in this really sort of bizarre, intimidating way, and they're just yeah, stone yeah. silent. And I'm like, wow, it's just mind blowing to see that. No, I saw I saw him put play. I saw him play. Um, uh, I mean, he has that famous song, "Let me let me put my hands on you." You know, yeah. I think is the is the big scream. And I saw him at Charlton supporting the Who when I was fifteen. Wow, uh, with my brother who was thirteen, and we were. <laughs> utterly transfixed by it well i think some of that <laughs> the, feels quite lost in performance at the minute you know i feel like i i've seen a lot of music at the minute and i and i want to see something more i want to see the soul and you know just a few weeks ago i saw mark rylance in jerusalem and i i walked out of the theater shaking and i'm and i when i walked out i thought i want to bring that to a to a gig to a show i want to bring elements of that to a music gig so that people walk out and go oh shit that's actually what we went for. I mean, the whole thing was, you know, it, it used to be like, I mean, you know, especially about the, like the who are the best example where it was scary, where, you know, Pete would be so confrontational with the audience. You know, there's a guitar up here if anyone, that little git wants to take it. And there was, that, <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? That was, yeah. Part, yeah. That was part of what you yeah. went for. You wanted to be scared. For the danger of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But I think, I think that's it. I think that, and I think a, a, a truly great performance is when an artist first comes on, that they are above the audience. They are greater, more powerful, more intimidating than the audience. And this is what the audience kind of wants, what we all want. By the end of the show, you are equals. Yeah. If you could somehow make that happen in the arc, yeah. you know, of your performance over an hour or hour and a half, whatever it is, you that's something really superb I, to achieve i'll tell you yeah. who has got it these days who and who i find his shows actually really quite terrifying is nick cave where yeah he's yeah. literally a shaman you know and it's the way he called where it's i went to a show of his in milan and you literally got the feeling if he said to that audience go and storm the tv station they would <laughs> they do it yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's something running through Nick Cave. It's uh, you know, it's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, amazing. it's very special. What what you said though, Gary, about the audience thing as well, and uh, it's it's definitely a sense of that. You've got to go in with that. And Jess Butterworth says that you know you you go into a theatre and by each act, you know the objective is so you're in a room for a thousand people. Then in Act Two, it shrinks down to half of that, and by the end of the play, it's shrunk down to just you, and it feels so intimate that there could practically yeah. be just a handful of people in there. And I think that's a really, really powerful thing, you know, to go in in with um, is that air of superiority to begin with in a way and then just to bring everybody closer to you by the end. I saw you in Jez's play, The Ferryman, which is obviously set during the Troubles in, in Ireland. And uh, uh, you went to Broadway with that, didn't you? Yeah. Paddy? Yeah, did did uh, five months on Broadway with it, which was never in my plans. So <laughs> I was like, what am I doing on Broadway? This wasn't supposed to happen, but it was the best experience. And with all the time you get on, on uh, in theatre as well, I just kept writing songs. So I, I just wrote, I don't know, about three albums worth of ideas out there. And, uh, you know, it was a really great time to do that. A lot of songs reappeared on Gobshite Rambo as well. So let's talk about uh, Riding the Low and how that, that came about. Because yeah. obviously, you, 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 and you've been in bands from early on. Your, wasn't your first band with, with, with Shane Meadows? Yeah, there was Shane. I mean, we were just kicking around at college. And I think the idea of having a band was, let's form a band. And it was Shane's idea at the time. Let's form a band and 
you know, we can get look cool and get girls interested in us. I think it was a very, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I love the idea that kind of acting and directing isn't going to do that. It's still music. Yeah, you know let's I mean? <laughs> get into music and do it. But I'd tinkered, in, I'd tinkered in band since I was like 15. I'd met my f- lifelong friend, Rich Eaton, who plays bass in, in Riding the Low. He's, he's the musician I've worked with the longest. And his next door neighbour was a kid called Nick Hemming who went on to form a band called the Leisure Society, who, who ended up yeah, getting... Yeah, I've seen them play. Yeah, they're great, and I... he's such a talented guy. But we were all John there. Sim. Yeah, John Sim took Vince, me to right? see them play. Yeah. So, yeah, we went to see them at, uh, at that church in Islington, and I the thought Union they Chapel. were absolutely beautiful. Union Chapel, yeah, Union Chapel. yeah. The Leisure Society. If no one's ever heard the Leisure Society, check them out. We should get Nick on, actually. Yeah, Nick's so, great. Go on, go Nick's on. great. And also, I used one of Nick's songs in um, Tyrannosaur, the first film I wrote and directed. I used this song, We Were Wasted, on it. Which is an amazing, yeah. incredibly powerful film. Got to say, yeah. Well, thank we'll you. Get up, we'll, we'll get, get on to that. Right, carry on. <laughs> but no, Nick. Um, so you got Nick living next door, and there's Rich, and I turn up, and we're knocking about. Richard's dad had all this. Where old is this? Whereabouts is this? In Burton on Trent, in a little estate called Winsel in Burton on Trent. And and Richard's dad had loads of this like old recording equipment from the BBC that he'd somehow got his hands on. So we used to play around with it and record skits and you know, mess about and things like that. And then we went to college and that's when we met Shane and formed a band. And it was literally sitting around a table and let Shane went, let's have a band. Um, I'll be the singer, of course. And then it was like, well, Rich will play the bass and our friends Simon will play guitar. What are you going to do? And I went, oh, I guess I'll play the drums. And then the next day, the very next day, this is not BS, a drum kit turned up at the college and somebody else didn't want it. And they said, does the college want it? So off we went, you know, and we became the college band. But that was kind of fun. It was just just a load of fun, and I enjoyed doing it. And then I went to Brighton, and that was in the 90s, so we formed a college Britpop band, which was really good good fun. But I never saw a career or anything in it, and I never wrote a song. It was bizarrely for me, when I was about 29, um, my wife one Christmas gave me an acoustic guitar, and I said, oh, thank you, that's great. In my mind thinking, what the hell have you brought me a guitar for? And I'm like, it's just going to sit in the <laughs> corner. <laughs> I don't play guitar. I was I was playing on the drums. And that morning, I just sat there and tinkered and, and wrote two songs. And they were okay, you know. And I, But the big surprise was, where's this? where have these things come from? You know, I never had any aspirations to be a songwriter. So where have they come from? And then... I just got addicted to it and that was it. And then I wrote songs on my own and Nick would help me out and record with me and Richard play on them. And I was very much like alone doing this. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to just, I've got a few songs I've written. I'm going to get a bunch of guys in the room, get them to learn them. And then I can record them. And then when I'm kind of around this age, and my kids are grown up, I can say, hey, your dad was in a band, you know? Have a listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the main reason. It wasn't until I got in a room with the other guys and they actually played the songs fully live that I went, oh, shit. Oh, shit. This other power came out of it. And I went, oh, wow. And and the potential, I just saw the potential for it. And I think six weeks later, Riding the Low were playing their first gig in Burton on Trent at Bar 15. And what when you said you were at college with Shane and you got those bands together, what were you were you studying to be an actor at that point? Yeah, I left school at you know sixteen, was it, and then went to college there, and, and it was a little sort of college annex in Winsel. The building don't exist anymore, and I only lasted a year. 
I left after a year. I, I just didn't like it. I was, I didn't feel like I was being taught anything. And I just sort of turned around and went, you know what, if, if this is what acting's about, then I'm, I'm not interested. And I gave up any aspirations to be an actor. It just didn't interest me at all. I didn't feel like I'd learnt anything. I wasn't learning anything and I wasn't enjoying the course. So I, I was on the dole for a year. You know, I put about three stone on. I met, my, <laughs> I met my wife when I was 18 and kind of had a mini breakdown and ended up, you know, ended up like Brian Wilson for a few months and all that, just sitting on benches in Burton on Trent thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Wow. And then wow. I went back to college that summer, but I did not to do performing arts. I did photography and film and, That's and I went Brighton. to Brighton University. Yeah. Well, eventually I went to Brighton University and did my degree in editorial photography, which I loved, which I absolutely loved my time in Brighton. It was a great time. It's, it was the it's 90s. It's a great town, man. But it's where yeah. I live. So. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. The music was fantastic. You know, we were young. We had no responsibilities and the films were great. Music was great. We had our own little band and it was all, all, all fun, really. But And what music were you into when you were, when you were younger? When I was really what, young. What inspired you? Well, I lived in a house full of people. Well, well, you know, my parents and my sisters. And it was so massively eclectic. I mean, it was just whatever pop music was going around, we played it and we loved it. Um, it, it would range from, I don't know, um, we could be listening to Brendan Sh a Brendan Shine record and then we were listening to ELO, then David Bowie, then the Sparks. And so music was music to me. I never sort of discriminated with it. I thought all music was great. And I never subscribed to any sort of particular genre. Even growing up in my teens, I adored what was perceived as pop music, which we now look back as great music, like Spandau Ballet. You know, those songs were just great. You know, they become a part of your life. Really I'll take do. that, Paddy. Thank they you. They do. And I listened to all of those bands. I it didn't, it, you know, I'd had no discrimination. But at the same time, I was listening to the jam. I was listening to the specials and I was listening to the Sex Pistols. And so that was the yeah. early years. You know, there was such a massive mix of things. I just love great songs. Um, but the big moment for me was when I was a little kid and I saw Adam and, Adam and the Ants on top of the pops doing um, Dog Eat Dog, I think it was. And that was the light bulb moment of like, whoa. Like that's, that's where the stripe on your face comes from, isn't it? <laughs> yes, as, yeah, because 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 Paddy Paddy has this black stripe yeah. across his eyes when he when he performs as uh, in Riding Alone. Well, some of our songs have a bit of a sort of a western kind of theme, and there's a song yeah, called Lone Tommy Ranger, Orton. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it comes out of the Lone Ranger, but it's definitely born from from Adamant, no doubt about it. But that was the moment, and that's it. I want to be a pop star. I want to be Adamant. So I I got my sisters to put bows in my hair and, you know, put on the makeup and you know I walked around my neighbourhood and nearly got beat up by a couple of guys because I was, uh, you know, I had lipstick how, on how and bows in how my hair. Well, I would have been. I was born in '73, so um, you know, when was that? About '81 or something like that. Dog eat dog. So I was only a little kid, but I was privy to all this music being so young. Our house was like a youth club and it was a bit of a place where if, if kids got thrown out of their homes, they'd come and sleep at our house. So, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and come downstairs and there'd be some six foot dude with his Dr. Martins and a massive Moeekin asleep on the sofa because their mum mom and dad had kicked them out. What did your parents but do, Paddy? They didn't do an awful lot, you know. My dad was unemployed for pretty much most of my life. You know, we grew up on social security. 
Oh, well, um, the, when I was the, a, the Thatcher lost generation. Yeah, all that sort of thing. My mom, um, I can't remember. I think when I was very little, she might have had jobs, but she was, she was, uh, you know, she was mom. She was at home. Deciding you wanted to be an actor is pretty rare amongst the back in a background like that. You know, I was a working yeah. class actor. And, um, you know, I went to Anna Sher and she encouraged the, uh, acting uh, amongst those local working class kids in, in Islington where I grew up. But it was a rare thing to say, to do, you know, to take that chance. It wasn't expected. You're expected to go into, you know, get some employment at 16. Down the print. Yeah. How did it come to you? How did it make... I just wanted... How did you imagine that? I don't know, Gary. I think there's a lot of it's to do with fate. And I'm just a really lucky person in a way. Because when I think back to myself as a teenager, I... I, I was. I remember a quote from Steve Jones when he's talking about you know pop stars and Brian Ferry. You know, he goes, "I thought these people fell out of the sky, like Bowie literally fell out on a star." And I'm like, mm-hmm. I felt the same. I, I just thought, how how would you ever become a, a a rock star? How would you ever do that? How would you ever become an actor? I had no concept. All I had was this sense that I wanted to get out and escape my beginnings in a way. And to transcend it. And that was really inspired by watching, you know, Rocky films as a kid and going, you know, I'm not going to be a boxer. I don't like getting belted in the face, but I want to get out of here. You know, we, we didn't have the greatest start in life. My old man was in and out and Nick and that when we were kids. And, you know, it's not it's not a sob story, but it was one where I thought I don't want that life for me. And I don't want that life for any of my potential children. But I wasn't good at anything other than performance. That was the only thing. Were you a reader? Uh, Yeah, I loved to read. Yeah, I loved reading, despite struggling with reading quite a lot. I did read books. Um, So, yeah, and I was always a bit of a dreamer, you know. I was always... But I'll tell you what didn't happen, Gary. My parents never told me, you know, never patronised me. My mum would always say to me, she was a very simple working-class lady, and she'd quote the ELO song, she'd say, hold on tight to your dreams. You know, she'd say things like that to me. And that was all we kind of really had. It was the outside world. It was teachers, careers officers, all them kind of people were the people like, what are you you going to do for a proper job? You know, and I hope it keeps right for you, mate. But I remember leaving school, going to a joinery and working, and I was sanding window frames for a summer. And I was going on to do this drama course that I never completed in the end. But I worked in this workshop full of people and not one of these people patronised me in any way. Not one of them. They were always saying, he's going to be an actor and he's, he's going to be... And their reference was like, you know, EastEnders. He's, and it was like, he's going to be on EastEnders one day. And they'd, they'd talk like that about me. And they'd never seen me act. I wasn't particularly good at acting. But these working-class people in this factory weren't going, yeah, mate, good luck. They were going, he's going to be an actor one day. He'll be on telly one day, he will. And I, find, I look back oh. now and I find that remarkable. My brother, when he was 16, he, he, le- he left school. Uh, I don't think he mind me t- t- telling anyone. He got one O-level in woodwork. And he, he went into the print where my dad was. And, uh, and he was a compositor, which would have been a redundant job by now. You know, it's where you actually you, you, you get the little bits of metal with A, B and C written on and you, you create the page. And he was training to be one of those. And when he, I think about a year later, you know, Spandau Ballet is starting to sort of kick off and the record companies are getting in, interested, but just vaguely. My dad writes a letter to the, his boss in the print saying, I'm sorry, my son has got to leave the firm because he's going to be a pop star. <laughs> he actually wrote that letter. And, and, the, and the bloke in the firm was just like, yep, yeah, right, lovely. Good luck to him. He's going to be a pop star. 
Oh, and amazing. Was, right, we'll let him go then. And, um, you know, there was no nothing condescending about it whatsoever. Yeah, but isn't it? Because that's, that's so much of what everyone's looking for is, is in pop stars and in actors and everything is is that thing of, of someone who got out. And it's yeah. either... And, and you can people look at that as a beacon in two ways. Either they did it so I can do it too. Or it's like, well, someone did. Yeah, know? yeah, so, yeah, you know. absolutely. Sometimes people tell me, why do you tell your story? Why do you say these things about you exposing too much? And I'm like, well, look, you know, it's it's what, what you said there. It's like, you know, it's going to inspire somebody or, or it's mm-hmm. going to make somebody say just that. Well, at least somebody did it. Yeah, um, but that's interesting you say that because I believe it is much harder for working class people yeah. to be taken seriously as actors. It is now. It's certainly now. There is a lot of class still within the acting fraternity, yeah. and especially within, you know, as far as producers and casting directors and directors look at actors and they they want them to be learned and well-read and and had a good education and quite often most of the very successful ones have come from private schools. Yeah. Do you, you know, working class actors do tend to end up in soap operas or comedy. Is, is it harder for you? Has it been harder for you? I think it is because because so much of my early work was formed with Shane. Um, I, I think my only frustration as an, act, as an actor is just saying I, I, I can do more than that. I, I, I'm not, those films are fantastic. People love them. I will never escape the shadow of dead man's shoes ever. Yeah. That's it. But like, as, for me as an actor, I'm going, I, I, I'm capable of so much more and I, and I somehow need to transcend that. But trying to break out of that mold has been really difficult. And it's not about like, oh, I'm, I'm aspiring for these roles to sort of, I don't know, um, you know, change my class in any way. You know, it's just... Uh, it's just I want the chance to be a, a king. You know, why can't I play a king in something? What's that all about? Why Why can I not be considered? And years ago, I got sent a script for this lead role, and the lead role was boring, and I knew I'd have a miserable time, and it would be a dull performance. But King Charles was great. And I went, I don't want to play him, but I'll play King Charles. And the re- response was, oh, they don't really see you as a king. So that's the yeah. kind of shit that you have to deal with. But I would say this to people. In general, I worked years ago with an actress called Natalie Press. I'd never read Shakespeare. And she was talking about Shakespeare. And because we tried to do it at school and it was boring, frankly, she brought it up and I went, oh, Shakespeare, fuck, you don't need fucking Shakespeare. You know, like, who needs that, you know? And she went, oh, well, that's a shame. And I went, why? And she went, because you'd love it. And it's an amazing world. And once you open that treasure chest, it's just wonderful. And I realized, I went, shit, your ignorance has denied you access to, to this mm. to this body of work, you know, to these great plays. And I think it, working class kids are afraid of that. You know, they're afraid to dive in because it's perceived as being posh or whatever, or yeah. you're somehow yeah. leaving, you, you know, your roots. We're very, very scared of stepping out of our comfort zones. But there's, as, can as I just put, this might be a bit of a, might be a bit of a blind alley, but uh, to Gary's point, there is a generational thing here because, you know, my dad was an actor, right? I grew up around actors. Yeah. And, but, and my mum always said the funny thing, when he started, which was like the early 60s, and um, everyone, you had to be working class. You had to pretend to be working class. Back then, that was, because that was the height of this meritoc- post-war meritocracy. And actually, yeah. all those all those great actors who seemed posh were all working class, or Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole. And yeah, yeah, of course. And, and so it was a completely different thing. And, and ironically, my 
my dad's first regular work was he became a member of the RSC. And he was completely You're talking untrained. about Terry Stamp and yeah, Michael exactly. Caine and, and yeah. kind of crap. So there is a generational thing. It is to do with this awful, you know, pulling up of the ladder that we've been experiencing over the last... You know, you, you know well, just remember that you know Shakespeare was a grammar school boy. I mean, it's yeah. actually funny enough. Mark Mark, Mark Rylance is, goes out of his way to try to deny that it was Shakespeare at all. Yeah, that, yeah, that stuff. But well, a lot of people do, which I also well, think is classist. Is that's that thing of the idea? No, it couldn't be him. It must have been this toff. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've got so much to bring to that work, given all of your experience and what you've done. Yeah, that, is, is Shakespeare something you've 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 not got up on stage and done Shakespeare yet? No, no, I only ever did it in a film. Justin Kurzel made a version of Shakespeare. I did a version of Macbeth, and that was the first time I ever did it. And that's the first time I played Banquo. Oh, you played Banquo. Yeah, yeah, and that's the first time I ever sat with the text and worked with it. You know, and it was quite frightening, really, because I'd made all these sort of. Uh, you know, I would had all these preconceived ideas about how difficult it was and the language and all those barriers. And once you decided to break it down, in actual fact, it was great training for when I did a House of the Dragon because, you know, some of that stuff isn't the easiest stuff to say. <laughs> so, it, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. it was good groundwork for that as well. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's talk about one of the musical films you did, which is 24 Hour Party yes. People. Yeah. Because you, you played Rob Gretton, didn't you? The manager. Guy, did you ever bump into Rob Gretton? Rob Gretton, yeah, he was around my house. I had him around my house once. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with Peter Hook. Well, how do you think Paddy did then? I think Paddy did very, very well. Uh, I, I, don't know. I remember Rob was very worried about getting a cab. And I thought this was, this was really funny for someone who's managed clearly one of the most chaotic bands in the world for like over 20 years at that point. It's like, mate, surely getting a cab is not a problem for you. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he, was, he was absolutely, no, you did fantastically. My takeaway from that film is one of the posters was of um, Steve as, um, oh, yeah. as Anthony, and it just said Pratt. So oh, I was like, oh, great, thanks a lot. Or something worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but that was actually, and actually a poster. Did you meet Rob Gretton? I think yeah. I've got one of those posters somewhere. And I don't know if it says see you next Tuesday on it or T-U-A-T, T-W-A-T on it. I'm not sure. (laughs) But did did you meet Rob? I'd never met Rob. No, Rob had passed away before we started the film. So um, Right, of course he had. Yeah, I never got to meet him, which was a shame. Did you meet any of the Manchester lot? Did you have to immerse yourselves? Probably all. Loads, loads of people, loads of people. You know, met all the new order. Stephen and Gillian I've met since. I saw Stephen the other week. We were playing a gig in Manchester 
And he was with a band called Sea Fever, and some of their members play with uh, with New Order. We get now. him on, actually. It's someone we want on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's great. He's a great guy. Uh, so uh, over the years, I've seen him out about at festivals and things like that, and met met Barney years ago a couple of times. But um, Peter was great. You know, I, I, I love Peter. I only met him really briefly, but I'm a big fan of Peter's. I, I love his bass playing. Um, yeah, yeah. He's really great. So. Um, so I met him, Tony. Tony was an interesting one because well, I'll tell you Tony a story. Wilson. Yeah, Tony Wilson. We were in Anthony that, H. Wilson. Anthony H. Wilson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah. We were in like a set of the Hacienda, and they'd rebuilt it. So it wasn't in the actual building, but they'd rebuilt it somewhere else, and as a set. But they'd done it perfectly inside. Everything was where it used to be, within a set. And I was st- standing in there and. I remember looking over and seeing Leslie Gretton, who's Rob, who's Rob's wife. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I took my glasses off because that was a big thing of Rob's. You know, he, he wore those big, big mm-hmm. glasses. And I went, I almost apologized for, for where, seeing her and I took them off and I said, oh, I'll, I'll take these off. And she went, no, no, I'm glad you did that. And we stood there talking. And as we're talking, she goes, do you know that this is the corner that me and Rob used to stand in? And I went, mm-hmm. wow. And then you look around the Hacienda and one by one, it was like, oh, and that was where the Happy Mondays used to hang out. And that was where, and everybody, actors, they hadn't been told to stand there, had gravitated naturally towards the different areas of the Hacienda where their bands would, would hang out. And I thought that was wow. really, really spooky. Wow. That they were just in different points. I remember seeing Bears. I met Rowetta Ro- took me over to meet Bears. And he went, are you, Rob, who are you playing? And I went, I'm playing Rob Gray. And he went, Nowhere near, mate. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and slam the door. You know what? <laughs> I, I would que- I, I would question Bez's memory of anything. To be honest, <laughs> did you but read Hook- but- Did you read Hooky's book about the hacienda? No, I haven't read it yet. I, no, I'd say no. to anyone, if you're, I mean, it's beyond any Spinal Tap level of like car crash, everything. It's just extraordinary. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah, I, I thoroughly recommend it. Tony wouldn't come near me on set. He wouldn't come anywhere near me. He avoided me. And, and it got to the point where I felt a bit like, what's the matter with him? You know, like he just won't, he's talking to all the other cast members or he won't come anywhere near me. And I felt started to feel slightly offended by it. And I think I spoke to his son and I said, um, you know, your dad won't come anywhere near me. He hadn't spoke to me really. And he said, well, why do you think? And then I realized in that moment that he was actually avoiding me because, you know, he couldn't talk to me when I was in the, in the costume and stuff. But I loved Tony. I sat next to him. So I'm just one little anecdote. I sat next to him at, Bernard Sumner's wedding at the reception and it was this was very near the end and he was really really unwell and he was clearly and and understandably angry and resentful at how he was and you know and and he just turned to me and he said what do you do I said oh, I'm a musician he went I hate musicians that was it <laughs> perfect well he said this to me I was sat we were, we were sitting in Cannes and I and he was on about oh I'm starting this new label and I've got a and, you know I'm doing bands and I'm, and I said I've got a band, Tony. He goes, how old are you? And I said, I'm 31. He went, you're too old, son. And I went, oh, oh I'm fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I won't give but, up just yet, but, you know. <laughs> my uh, my friend John Sim, who plays uh, Bernard in it, uh, he's, he, he said making that movie was, shall we say, um, immersive. 
uh, quite method. <laughs> I think it was for some well, more than others, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> quite, quite a lot of hugging, quite a lot of hugging entailed, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was a bit of that going down. I mean, that's not quite my scene, but there was, yeah. there was a lot of that going down. There was a lot of casualties. I was looking around at people like going, you, you, you don't look very well. Like, you know, this isn't good. Maybe somebody needs to step in here and uh, have a word with you. But yeah, it was crazy. But, but what a film. I mean, I it's thought... It's a sort yeah, of rave apocalypse now, kind of. Just literally yeah, a rave apocalypse now. That's amazing. <laughs> Steve was great in it. Steve was brilliant. I remember getting on a coach on it as well and not realising that they'd brought a load of, like, real prostitutes on there. And so I got stuck on this coach because I went... I just finished shooting a scene and then everyone was on the coach and I got on with them and I went, hey, and then the coach took off and then it did this massive, you know, circle of whatever. And I was sitting on this coach going, oh shit, hide me, hide me. I'm not on it. I, I cannot be seen to be being on it. This is just. <laughs> yeah. And then your missus called. Then your missus called. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was, no, it's not a bad time. Scene? Why are you on a coach? Why are you on a coach? They're all on a coach in it and they're all getting off their heads and there's all sorts of terribly nefarious things going on. And I'm like, right, 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 I'm like, right, right. get me off this coach. So when we pulled up at the services to get off, I couldn't get off it quick. And I was like, get me out of here, man. This is not for me. I mean, someone, someone else you, you, you played was Frank Farragut, who's, um, whether or not he was part of, of Brian Jones's suspicious death or not, um, it gets looked at in the movie about Brian called Stoned. The Stoned is is directed by uh, Stephen Woolley. Yeah, yeah. Who, um, and and Stephen is one of the reasons that I ended up in Spandau Ballet. Really? Because well, Stephen went to um, went to my school, and uh, he's three years above me, and he left early. He loved films so much. I think he left when he was sixteen, and he became assistant manager at Screen on the Green. Here we right? go. Here, here we go. Here we go. Yeah, here we go. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> 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 in somewhere. And Stephen. <laughs> Stephen phones up. Oh, he, he tells Steve Dagger, who's who's a friend of ours. Yeah, you've got to go down to the screen on the green this night in August because because we're going to have the Sex Pistols play, and of course that's why I end up going to see the Sex Pistols and and forming the band I formed like the week after with Steve Norman. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, so that's my connection with Stephen. But Stephen wrote, I think he wrote Stone, did he? Or he certainly directed it. I think he did. I've got to really put my hand up and be honest. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I even saw the finished film. I can't. It was such a long time ago, and I can't remember much about it, really. Um, so it's a weird one to talk about. I know that Stephen was, okay. was really sort of uh, steeped. He, he was fascinated with Brian Jones and really wanted to tell that story. I haven't um, seen it either. So, you, you know, you're in good hands here. We're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I, I, no, I, I do remember seeing it. I, I don't I, watch I, a lot of things I've done, if I'm honest with you. I don't watch a lot of stuff, so... It's a funny thing. Yeah, it's a funny... But that's quite common with with actors, isn't it? Is that you'd ever... Yeah, because when you mentioned Blitz, I was like, I've never seen it. I've never watched it. My, my friend Paul <laughs> very good. never very watches good. anything he's ever done. He doesn't want... No, I can understand. Who was it, the director? Paul Newman did a, did a some chat show with the director of the... Oh, it, it was of a film he'd just done. And, and he... And, and, and they said, yes, Paul, Paul famously never watches any film he's ever been in. So, and I have said to him... It really, you really should consider watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because it really yeah. is a very good film. Because you're really good in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a classic, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and have you, but did, is that because you said earlier that you know your wife had said 
oh, you've got to come and see the end of of House of, Dra- of, 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 of Dragons and yeah. Dragon because you you hadn't. I assumed you'd already seen it, but is it something that you feel very uncomfortable about watching yourself on screen? Yeah, it's it's the experience of making something versus the finished thing, and. Um, you know, I always find it difficult. I have watched stuff in the past, and I watched the first couple of episodes of House of the Dragon, you know, very tentatively, but I watched them in chunks, and then I watched them at the, the screenings, the premieres. Um, but then after a couple of episodes, I stopped looking in, you know, and I just looked at some of the stuff that other people were doing in the show, which was great. I can't do it. I just have a terrible, terrible self-esteem issue that I've never been able to quite get over. And so I, I, I can't do it. It depresses me for days. And because um, I just see absolutely terrible, terrible work. And I can't. So, and I don't say that no. to everybody who goes, oh, no, mate, you're brilliant. I just, it just something to me. It hits me on a, such a sort of a tough, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, a level. I just, I've got I'm so vulnerable watching. I can't do it. And I just think I'm a bad actor and then I get depressed and want to quit and all that kind of nonsense comes in and I just, you know, so I try and avoid it as much as I can. Is that being a perfectionist? Is that is that actually secretly what makes you so good at what you do? I don't know if I am that good at what I do. I, I just do it. You know, I've had to do it. I think ultimately underlying everything I do, music, I'm a survivor. I've had to survive and I, I don't know what else to do with my life. And music and performance and sometimes directing are the only things that have ever made sense to me. But a lot of it's about survival to me. I just don't want to be exposed, you know, feel exposed like that and just go, I'm a phony or something. You know, it's 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 quite a difficult thing. Imposter syndrome. We've all got it. We've all got. You know, yeah. we've all got it. It's it's part it's part of the kit. You know, it's. I think I it think. is. And you yeah, like, but... get over yourself. You know. It's well, you know, I fe- I felt that about being working with Nick Mason on this this band. You know, because a lot of people were very suspicious about me doing that. You're waiting for the hand to come on your shoulder and someone to say, "I'm sorry, it's been a terrible mistake." <laughs> you know, do, do it doing doing the craze that put my head on the chopping block too. And sometimes you just you just you know you've got to just push yourself out yeah, there. Well, you've only that. got one go at this well, right? when we got when we we got to toronto just about a week ago and i had the, and it all comes back because that's where i first rehearsed with pink floyd and everything and i remember coming in and seeing that stadium and just thinking you're you're going home in a week you're being sent home there's, i mean of, of course you are there's no you can't do this yeah <laughs> so, it's crazy i know i know we do it to ourselves and it's it's terrible um but but there's a part of me that won't doesn't want to run away either. So even doing a, a play or whatever, yeah. you're terrified of it. But you kind of going if I run away, that's worse. I have to face this thing. Do you feel that when you watch yourself performing, if you watch videos of yourself performing with Riding the Low, do you, do you still or is that something that? Yeah, I don't I, I don't mind photographs of Riding the Low. I think because people film them on their phones. And our, our music isn't so massively known because I think that if someone takes a shitty, you know, video of a saucer full of secrets gig, well, people are familiar with the music and they can fill in the blanks for the audio sounding so horrific. Whereas people film our gigs and they don't really know our songs massively. And so they think that's what we sound like and it sounds like shit. So they're not filling in those blanks. So I can't watch it. Like you do a great gig and the atmosphere has been amazing and you know, the relationship with the audience, you know it's been a great show, you can feel it. And then someone goes, oh, look at this, and they start showing you footage, and you're like, 
it just sounds like you're in a tin can or something. And I'm like, yeah. there's no atmosphere. And I'm like, I, I don't, I can't do this, but I don't mind listening to our songs. I love listening to the songs. I love writing the songs and I love playing live. Um, but yeah, it's, it's less excruciating, but there's something defiant about riding the low and there's something, there's a sense of purpose about it. It gives me a different sense of purpose. So I don't feel the same about it. There's a part of me riding the low that I'm, you know, that kind of, that, what was that film, The Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come and all that. I feel like that with riding the low. I said, just keep going on your path, keep doing what you're doing because the penny will drop and people will turn up. And, and Tim Burgess helped helped you really at the beginning, didn't didn't he? Tim Burgess. Tim Tim's one of the best men out there because we he's, love Tim. He's a national treasure. Yeah, especially what a done. guy. Yeah, and no no kind of like pretense. We were facing a lot of stuff because of me being in a band. There was a lot of suspicion. Oh yeah, mate. That you know people messaging in on that dreadful thing called Twitter saying, you know, failed vanity project and all the rest of it. Ugh. And I'm like, man, you know, we're just you know we're just doing our thing and and but tim was never like that tim tim got into it or onto it and he says why do you want to come and play some festivals so that's what we started doing and then we supported the charlatans a couple of times and over the years he's had his back and he's got a great guy that works with him tim a really unsung guy called nick fraser who's a top man and he's always been out there for us going to bat for us and getting us gigs and, and festival slots and things like that he, he's the guy that got us on at bingley so we've had these really great people along the way who, who've actually seen the band a few times and gone ah okay i get it i know what this is now and it takes a few times go sometimes mm-hmm. for, for people to get that it's authentic yeah. you know if i wanted to just just put, play music i'll get my mates in the garage and we can have a knock up band do some covers not a problem but I wrote Riding the Low songs and I thought they were good enough to take out and present to the world. And I still believe that. So that's what drives it. How is it for the other guys in the band? For, you know, because you clearly have a, another schedule. I do have another schedule and that's always seen as the one that's the most problematic. But mm-hmm. they're, they're all like, we're all pretty much middle-aged guys. They've all got jobs. Some are teachers. Some, you know, Dan works in the local guitar shop. Um, Richard and Chris are both teachers. They can't just up and leave their jobs either. Um, so no, it, yeah. it's got to work around everybody. Paddy, <laughs> something else you've done really successfully. I mean, I love you, man. I mean, singer, actor, and you you go and direct a film which you write, and it is incredible, and uh, and and rightly wins awards. Uh, Tyrannosaur you did in 2011 um, I, I watched it recently and I've we messaged you to yeah. say how incredible yeah. I thought it was I mean the two central performances from Peter Mullen and Olivia Coleman oh, I think it's the best thing she's ever done yeah yeah why she, you. you know how, how you win Oscars for some things and yet those yeah, yeah. that performance well, yeah. Yeah. slips the there's net one scene reason. she has which is just wow what I wanted to sort of know was how much of that was based on your family life and and your and, and what you knew as a as a as a kid growing up. Yeah, I think it was a, a, it's one of those where it's a, a kind of stew of everything really. That um, so I couldn't specifically pick out one thing and say this is about my dad, this is about my mom. It was just everything about growing up. Um, um, and I think you know, my dad was was a very sort of violent man at times and very volatile. Um, 
and I don't know, you know, my mom, you know, as she got older, she, she, she got worse with her health. She ended up having no legs and, and being blind. She had both her legs amputated. And that's the Tyrannosaur in the film that he talks about. And it's the characters in some way dealing with his, with his guilt. And I think in some ways I was probably dealing with the guilt of my mother through that film of not feeling like I was probably the best son I could have been. Um, but there's so many things going on in it. There's the there's the young artist, the little artist kid, who's in that world. Oh, yeah. But obviously, he's an aspiring, you know, artist in some way. He's got a beautiful nature, but that world drags him in, and disfigures him. There's all these people just trying to uh, transcend their boundaries, but the worlds that they're in are pulling them back down again. And so, does that estate yeah. reflect the estate that you grew up on? Sort of, yeah. It does. I mean, yeah, it does. Very visually, it's it's very much like it. I could do a tour of where I grew up, and you would say that looks just like the set from Tyrannosaur. And there were certain events in it, um, you know, that I, I based it on. Um, but it, it's a, a little bit of everything, really. And I think it's also that thing about judgment, about being judged. I was judged a lot as a little kid. Um, because of my father's reputation. The name Considine in, it wasn't the best one around town. And, you know, I was having doors shut in my face and not being allowed to hang around with other kids because of my surname, and I hadn't done anything wow. wrong. So I think that there's also that element in there of judgment and how we judge people, how we meet people. And Peter's character makes a massive judgment of Olivia's character in there. He just yeah. assesses her and rips her down because of where she thinks she's she lives and where she's from, but in actual fact, she's dealing with her own hell. And I just, I think yes. part of me wanted to say something about that too, about how we just cast judgments on people. I mean, he has to be one of the greatest actors we have. Yeah. I, I, um, yeah, uh, I'm glad questions. you said that. Yeah. I'm two glad questions. you said that. Was this an emotionally difficult project for you to be involved in? But also, did you feel that same imposter syndrome of, 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 you know, it was your first time as a director. We, did you feel, because you must've felt I'm being judged by other actors here on how I direct them. I, I never, was, was it... I never did, Gary. I never did. I never did. It was just, interesting. that period of making Tyrannosaur. I wrote that film in a week. It, that film knew what it wanted to be. It was almost like something was writing through me. I, I had no filter when I wrote it. There was no editor in my head. I just went. It was pure expression from beginning to end. And that's what the film felt like. That's what the process of it felt like. It, it felt like nothing could go wrong, even when things did go wrong. Even when a few weeks before I got a call from the producer going, you know, the 1.5 million budget, um, we've, we've only got half of that now. You know, <laughs> we're down to 750,000 pounds to make that film. And I went, we're making it. That's it. I don't care. I don't care. We're, we're making this film. Um, whatever got in the way of it didn't just couldn't stop me from making it. So it was a strange experience and one that I, I sometimes experience again as a songwriter and experience as an actor where things just go into that place of flow and you're on a path and there's nothing yeah. going to get in the fucking yeah. way of it. Nothing. As a slightly more general thing, I noticed it because like, you're, you know, you have this, the three key players, you have this amazing cast. And one thing that does seem to be common when actors direct films is they always have great casts. It's always yeah. a, is there a thing about because an actor is directing it, you're thinking this is going to be great because they know what I do? I think so, yeah. I think yeah. actors feel quite safe with other actors directing them because we know what it feels like on the other side of it. And 
you know, you, 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 I just wanted somebody in the centre of it that was very, very solid and very trusted and very brilliant. And that was Peter Mullen. And I wanted to build everything around him because he was the first person casting it. He was the guy. I made a short film called um, Dog All Together, and Peter was casting that. Um, so I had him back for Tyrannosaur, and Olivia was in the short as well. When it came to making the feature film, the, the problem I was coming up with was that Olivia had never done anything like that before, anything. And I remember sitting in like a meeting with producers and then going, so who are you thinking of for the lead, you, you know, the lead role of Hannah, the female lead? And I went, oh, it's Olivia from the short. And, the, and there was a silence of like, oh. Little did um, they know. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, okay, um, have you thought about anyone else? I went, no, no, she's going to do it. How do you know she oh can God, do it? So and I said, oh, I, I don't know she can do it. I said, well, I don't care. I said, she's doing it. I just had this sense in me. What I had in Olivia was untapped potential. I just thought, and it was partly down to, as well, seeing Kathy Burke in Gary's Nil by Mouth, you know? Oh, and yeah, I yeah, thought, yeah, yeah. She, and I thought, you know, Olivia's pure untapped potential. If I cast another actress in that role, when Peter goes in that shop, they're going to immediately look at her and see the damage. And I didn't want that. I didn't want that. And nobody was familiar with Olivia at that time. So when he goes in that shop to her, when we start to reveal her part of the story, it was a revelation because that's not what people expected her to be dealing with. No, just she didn't know she could go to the, those depths, but it was my job to take her there and make sure. And, and after the first week, she wasn't, she, she, it wasn't looking good, I'll be really honest. But wow. when she came back after the first week and we had a little chat, she was a, she was a revelation. And the biggest thing was, trust me, these are not, these are not your words, they're Hannah's. You know the characters. You've got to trust me on this process, every step of the way of it. And she did. And by the time we got to the last week of shooting, you know, because some of those scenes I was literally lying at her feet, talking her through emotions, not because she wow. can't do it, but I was just firing her head. You know, getting her to run up and down the stairs and run into the room to get, you know, just in the state for for certain scenes, stuff she'd never done before. But it was it was just pulling it out of her, and then. When it came to the lab, there was this scene, that the ultimate scene where Peter comes round and he's found Eddie Marzan. I won't say any more if people haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think there was a jar of flowers in the middle of the room and I could see her. She'd done this scene, done the moment, I'd left it running, and I could see her running out of steam. Being an actor, I know when that happens. And that's when you're supposed to shout, cut. But I went, smash the fucking flowers! And she just got this thing of flowers and smashed them on the floor. And it just created this moment. I didn't have to say anything else to her in that moment because she cracked the code. And by the time she was so steeped in the work that she was oh, just there. Right. It was, a, it was Every, a revelation. That's how, you know, that's how flamenco singers work. They have their mentor, a teacher who will be there shouting and guiding them all the way through a performance. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. It's your orchestra. Nice collection. <laughs> we we have to talk about. Uh, let's talk about House of the Dragon. Yeah. Because oh my god, this has taken I, over. I just want to make is, sure is... we're not going to alienate your audience that tune in every week, like I do, 
to listen no, to mate, great rock mate, and roll. Mate, I was like, with the amount of prog we cover, I think we are, capes and dragons are safe, even though it's not my, it, before Game of Thrones, that wasn't my area either. Your performance as the king, I mean, it's Shakespearean stuff. I mean, I'm assuming, I mean, we're up to episode eight now. We've already warned people this. There might be some spoiler alerts in this. Yeah. But it, I'm, assu- I'm assuming that that was your last breath that, that when you, you finally utter at the end on the death, it's a deathbed scene, right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. No more. That was it. Those were his last words to his, you know, his wife. But the part you did, I mean, Paddy, this isn't blowing smoke. This isn't bullshitting you. This is one of the great television performances of all time. I mean, Shakespearean stuff. I mean, what you did in, in a, in, in with that, with that character, the, the way you, the vulnerability in you showed, and I mean that scene towards the end when he try when he gathers himself up and he walks down to the to the throne scene, yeah. and, he, and he tries to make resolution between these warring families, and yet when you later on you're having your final dinner and you just you can see suddenly you realise nothing I can say is is going to stop gonna this do horror. No, that's life, isn't it? But that's what I saw in the writing and, and saw in the character, and it's life. You can have this notion of putting your house right, you know, before you pass and all these beautiful ideas about, you know, the end of your life. And But it doesn't work that way. Life isn't like that. You can't control people. You know, it's difficult to, to influence and control them. And, yeah, I think as long as in his mind he did his best and he did his last duty and he stood at that table and he looked at everybody and basically said, look at me. Just look at me for who I am. I'm a, I look at me as a father, not as a king. This crown, it weighs you down. It destroys you. It slowly destroys you and eats away at your skin and your bones. And it transforms you into this grotesque skin that he became at the end. And I think his thing was saying, look at what this does to you. This thing that you all fight for. This is all it does. It's caused this, this destruction. And um, I think by the time he goes upstairs then and takes his last breath, it's like, that's I, I've done all I can. I can do no more. Just please take me away and reunite me with the love of my life. And I think he also sets the, he also <laughs> set, set, sets chaos. He does he? because because, because he, he thinks he's talking to his daughter, but he's talking to his wife. Yeah, and 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 there's this confusion about 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 the the, the god you're talking about, and she thinks you're talking about her son. Yes, and, yes, and you're pass, passing on your blessing for him to be. Uh, the, the the next in then the heir to the throne. Yeah, I yeah. yeah. I suppose the important thing is, Paddy, is has it made you a monarchist? <laughs> <laughs> no, it has not. <laughs> well, how much how much do you get to uh, to improvise on in in those scenes, or are they very strict with the script? No, to be truthful, you don't. The, what they did allow to leave in the show in the end was a couple of improvised moments from me because I was so invested in that character. And I'd shot these scenes earlier on with Sean Brooke, who played my wife. And they were such brilliant scenes. And I watched her go through this, like, you know, they put her through this terribly brutal procedure. And I think it's something that the character never gets over. He never recovers from... Putting... She has to have a caesarean, doesn't she? She, she does, yeah. I mean, people misunderstood and thought that he sentenced his wife to death and chose his kid. It wasn't that. They were both going to die. But we can save this child if we put her through this terrible this procedure. But it's horrific. So for me, I was able to come full circle with the character. I just kept that secret with me of like the love for his wife is the thing that's, because, you know, you talk about, you know, acting and 
you know, technique. And I just think for some characters, sometimes you carry a little secret and that was it for him. He never recovered. So when he got sick, um, he never asked to be cured. The maesters ran around trying to cure him in, in all sorts of ways, but he wasn't asking for a cure. He wasn't panicking about that. It's almost like silently he had accepted his fate. Um, so in that final moment, all he, in my mind, all he wanted to do was be reunited with his wife and who was the love of his life. And I'd ask the writers, is there a concept of an afterlife? Is there an idea of, of God or any of these things? Um, and I just put it, but it was a choice I just made. I thought when he dies, when he looks up, he sees her and that's his passing. And that was the choice I made and they kept it in. It was an improvised moment and they kept it in. And I was just really grateful that they did that. Um, so no, it's not an improvised thing. You can't just rock up and improvise on Game of Thrones. You know, there's too much language, but they left in some detailed moments like that. And I was really grateful for that. You know, there's this brilliant scene when you're coming in at the end and you're, you're, you're to, to the throne room and you're, you're, you're hobbling in. It's so shocking. And you drop the crown and, uh, and Matt Smith puts it back on your head and all of that. Yeah. I mean, these, are, these are brilliant symbolic moments. Yeah, but that was another sort of accident that happened that was another moment that just happened by accident so and again you know when when it happened it was such a great moment but i went to the director Geeta, and i just said uh, you've got to keep that in you know we've got to build that in oh, because wow. it's too good wow. so it wasn't in the script because i found your the, the character throughout the series i've got to say was i kept thinking sometimes you're not entirely sure it's like is this he's is he just incredibly sage and wise and cautious or is he just being dithery and being played by yes this? Yeah, yeah. So I think he was smarter quite good. than it's people very thought. Yeah, exactly. It's just that one is he like, was. is he is he any good? <laughs> yeah, they just wanted. But, he, but he, he was just trying to kind of. He was. He was. You know, de-escalation was his kind of mantra. Wasn't that it? was his thing. Yeah, and yeah. He, you know, in story terms, yeah. there'd just been a peaceful king called Jaharis, who was a peacetime king, and mm. and that's what he inherited, and that's what he wanted to continue. But you know, early on, the reactions were he's weak and. You know, he's boring or whatever. And I'm like, nah, man, he's got a plan. He's a wise guy. And, you know, you'll miss me when I'm dead. That's the other performance, by the way, that really comes... Is Reese in this is... Yeah, yeah. Is phenomenal. As well, you know, it's the, the this is what makes these, everything about... The two of this, you are these towers of, you know, it's fantastic. It's what makes oh, everything brilliant. about this series so, so good. Because, I mean, Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook, I'm obsessed yeah, yeah, yeah. with them. Their, their yeah, yeah. performances are beyond. And... But as actors, to be thrown into this world, and you guys didn't know whether the prequel was going to work, right? No, no. You're thrown into a world where you're talking, it's not Shakespeare, this is, there are dragons and magic in this. Yeah. And lots of weird shit. But you have to take it enormously seriously and, and invest emotionally in it. The, the level that everyone's pitching at is way up there. It's so strong and so good. How do you come to agree on all of that? How do you come to be get your to believe in it? I don't, you know, I, you've got to set the tone. And, and when I said before in interviews that I took playing the king very seriously, I really meant it. I, I, you know, you've got to go in there and be a good example and set a sort of, you know, this isn't all on me, but I'm just saying I had to take this very, very seriously. I was, I was mm -hmm. the king and this for whatever relevance it said you were number one on the call sheet right you know what that means and it's like i've got to i've got to set some sort of standard for myself only um and and that's 
all that really happened, we just, I, I don't know, we just went in with a certain standard and I had a certain standard. And I always thought that it was a great part. I never didn't think that he was a great part. When I read it, I thought mm. someone's passed this, someone else has had this and passed on it. They didn't. Um, it was for me. It was sent to me. They only considered me. And when I read it, I, I was like, I don't care if this guy's the king of the fucking Smurfs. I don't care. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a great role. And I, and I thought yeah. he was a gift. And I'm like, I love him. And, and I've just got one job to do, go there and make this as believable as I possibly can. What is it like when you're there on set? Because when you see it on TV, it's fucking unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? I mean, yeah. is, there a lot of, is there a lot of blue and green screens hanging everywhere, are you? There wasn't for me, no. I, I was very much stuck in the red keep, you know, sat on the arse for most of it. So and where, where is that? Where is the red keep? Where physically at, in the world? At, at, at Leavesden. So we were, we were just there all the time. We were at uh, in Watford all the time while I was. So um, oh, now you've now you've ruined it for yeah. me. Now <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to be the same, mate. So like I, I never got to do any of that kind of stuff. But without spoiling the illusion of it, really, you know, I, you can have all the dragons you want. But if the drama doesn't work on a humanistic level, then. What's the point? Yeah. You know, if if you, yeah. you but the show's worked because you know you're sitting there in these junkets earlier on, and you say, "No, it's a family drama," and it sounds like some bullshit buzzword that you've, uh, you know, something you've been given by HBO to say to people who are interviewing you. But the truth is, it it is a family drama, and and, and people are going to watch it and they're going to yeah. identify with certain aspects of it. The response I got after the last episode was how many people had nursed their parents and loved ones in the last days of oh, their yeah, life yeah, and yeah. seen. You know? Absolutely reminded me of of the death of my parents. Mm -hmm. Your performance on on the deathbed is is just breathtaking. Um, Paddy, it's just so amazing having you on, and yeah, really uh, don't ever feel that you're not as worthy as Noddy Holder. Guys, <laughs> did you want to say something? I saw well, there was one little, the, the one thing that struck me about the whole, that, and I'm just wondering, it's just a little personal thought, which is the reason I th about the Game of Thrones and House of Dragon is because what it is, it seems to me because we haven't had this sort of telly or film for a long time, apart, is, is that in the 70s, it's exactly the sort of thing people wanted to make in the 70s. But this is like, with all the sex and violence they would have wanted, but couldn't do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think so. There's always a bit of Caligula thrown in there at, yeah. at certain yeah. points. <laughs> what, what's, what's next, Paddy? Well, you know, we've got, um, you know, as far as riding the lower concern, we've got a new single coming out in November. And um, we've got a, a show in a couple of weeks in Derby that we managed to sell out, which was great. And, and then, you know, we're going to go and make the next album. We've got management now because everything we've done so far, we've done on our own. And, um, you know, with help from people like Tim, of course, and Nick. But, you know, it's pretty much us doing doing the work as it is. But, like, we've got management now open that next year. We've got some festivals already. So that's what we're really doing, um, acting-wise. Yeah. I haven't got a job at the minute, so... It's tricky. Wrestling, it's tricky, love. isn't it? Being, being, I'm like Yossa Hughes. You remember Yossa Hughes? Yes, a job. Yeah, remember him a job. Boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's tricky. Do you think it's tricky in the UK being taken seriously when as as an actor and as a musician? There's always this kind of thing where you can only really have one job. You know, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I've I've suffered that slightly. You know, well, I have suffered it. You know, I, you know, he's not really an actor. He's a musician. 
you, you go to do America all right. They seem you to do fine. Uh, no, no, no. But there is this. There is. It's, it's tricky. And and. Uh, yeah. My agent will tell you. Um, but if you go to America, they seem to be more embracing. Of, of yeah, they do. Food. They're not so much like, you know, there's that mentality in England of like, stay in your lane, mm-hmm. stick to what you're good at. And, uh, you know, I, I never, I, I don't know. I Write music to me seems as natural as it does uh, acting in House of the Dragon. It's just part of what I do, you know. Paddy Considine, the artist. We are happy to yeah. have had you on, mate. You're, you're, you're a special person. It was person, a joy. And it's a so long much. one. It's a long one. That's always the good sign. That's the sign. Well, I hope, I hope it does all right. I hope this makes number one. I'll, I'll be chuffed with that. Yeah, there you go. It's been really, really <laughs> brilliant. Be really great talking to you. Really great talking no, to you. No, mate. I really looked forward to it. And so great to see you both. Yeah. No. Brilliant. Okay, we've got to go, haven't we, guys? We have got to go. We've got to go to church studios, as we just said. Um, but that was fantastic. It was brilliant. What a lovely, refreshing man to talk to, and, you know, as, as yes. relevant to this as anyone. Do you think I'll get any birthday cake today? Oh, God. I meant to say that it was your birthday I to, to uh, Paddy. I think you I did at the beginning. No, I, I did, but I didn't, you didn't say I it to didn't, Paddy. I didn't say it to Paddy. But then, no, no, no. I feel a little bit upset about that, but never mind. Um, <laughs> um, all I'm hoping on is is, uh, is is a nice piece of cake with you later. Have you, well, are you baking it? Have you got your? I, I am. It's, it's, a, it's been a nightmare in here. And of course, with our, 110 volts, it takes forever for water to boil. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, can we? I, I want to th- thank Ben Jones, our producer. Uh, 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 give me sugar and. Um, we are. We've got a. We've we've got a one more while we're away. I think. Or two uh, maybe one or two. One or two more. Yeah, yeah. We're going to keep at uh, it for you, people. We, That's what we do. We are. And uh, thank you for listening. It's good night from me. And it's good night from them. Mm-hmm.